Hello and welcome to this week's Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Bagshaw. I'm GP and clinical lead for mental health at NHS Somerset. And I'm joined as usual by co-host, friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew Trasida, NHS Somerset. Thank you, Peter. And this week, we're delighted to be joined again uh, by another friend and colleague, Dr. Ashish Bhatia. Ashish, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what you're going to talk on today? Yeah, hello, and thanks for inviting me back. Uh, I, I'm delighted to be talking about improving insomnia. And uh, to describe myself, I am passionate about sleep. You probably gathered that. I work as a GP, which means gentle presence to me. And I endeavour to show up and help us bring out our best. I also am an educator teaching in Bristol Medical School and other environments, teaching the public and fellow practitioners, and the founder of an organisation uh, called Humble. So to get in touch with me, it's humblesleep.com. Fantastic. And I think as GPs, we, we've all seen a lot of patients really desperate about sleep issues. And it's it's very tempting just to reach for the prescription pad, but we know that's that's really not a good way of addressing it. So tell us a little bit more about uh, your approach to insomnia and, and how you can help people. Yeah, I, I think I could sort of summarise it in this phrase. My preference is to harmonise rather than hack. I, I love to nurture our positive potential and if a challenge comes up as a point of disease whether it's you know emotional challenge or difficulty sleeping or poor energy I like to try and you know use the tools that we've got sometimes prescribing but also try and understand where it's coming from so we can learn the lessons and, and evolve uh, and almost be grateful that it's come. I mean, if I could be really bold, I'll say running sleep groups in, in GP settings, uh, I get lovely emails from people telling me, I'm so, I, I never thought I'd be pleased that I had insomnia because by addressing the insomnia, they've had an opportunity to address lots of other issues that are linked and threaded to it. So the curse becomes a blessing. That's a really fascinating approach to the whole of uh, clinical uh, medicine, and I, I really applaud you for that. But focusing on insomnia, what is insomnia before we yeah. ask to help it? I, the, 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 the shorthand is you want to sleep, but you can't. <laughs> you struggle to sleep at night. The sort of the, the technical terminology is, is someone who um, struggles to get to sleep, to maintain sleep, I stay asleep, um, though we're designed to wake up in the night. Also, they might struggle with waking up too early or feeling unrefreshed by sleep. And, and the, this experience um, can also impact on our functioning in the day. So it's, it's actually knocking onto us um, because it's totally natural to wake up at night. But if we feel anxious about it, that impacts on our day, even if we're getting enough sleep. So um, a, 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 a sleep colleague who actually mentors and trains me called Jane Raymond at NBT Trust sort of describe he describes it as anxiety at night that occurs at night but disproportionately so. And you mentioned uh, waking early in the morning and we were all taught that that can be a, a symptom of depression weren't we so do you want to just say a little bit about that and get that one out the way maybe for people who are waking up and think oh I must be depressed because I'm waking up early in the morning. Yeah there are lots of factors that can influence our 
our wake up time and um, that we actually have internal body clocks, a, a kind of preset to try and wake us up within the so an hour or so each day. And that's why we get jet lagged when we say go uh, on a flight at a distance. It takes us about a day to reset that internal body clock. But if that body clock is triggered by other mechanisms, for example, um, screens or feeling anxious, so we actually produce the chemicals that would wake us up at normal time, but we produce them, say, 90 minutes earlier, we get something called early morning wakening. And, and, and uh, it actually can be an early indicator of other mental health conditions. So insomnia is highly correlated with other mental health issues like depression, anxiety, PTSD. And so it's... Um, and I'd add in dementia, where it oh, can yes. both be one of the early symptoms of dementia, and also it seems as though poor sleep is is a risk factor for dementia. So just to throw that one in. Yeah, but just to also say, waking up early doesn't necessarily mean you've got dementia, but it can be a clue. There, there are lots of other factors to consider as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's quite natural if lay Santa's about to come as well, you know. <laughs> if Santa's about to come, absolutely. Um, I heard the story uh, of um, a brother and sister who put out a a, a trip wire for Santa uh, <laughs> in, were age six and five and, and tripped up their father. Anyway, sorry. Um, tripped up Santa. Who, and just, <laughs> um, anyway, perhaps I oughtn't to persist with that just in case there are young ears listening to this yeah. podcast. Can I ask you, you mentioned earlier that it's kind of an opportunity and you implied, I think, that insomnia can be a, a symptom of other things going on. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? That's a, a really interesting idea. Yeah, and the the mechanisms of insomnia are nuanced, but an understanding is, is emerging that um, uh, for insomnia to happen, the there's often a predisposition. Uh, you know, something about us means we're predisposed. But that predisposition is, is thought to only have about 30% a genetic component. So 70% of it is something in our, our personality or our environment that can change. So something predisposes us. Um, and then there's a precipitant. Something triggers it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be conscious. It could be, you know, traveling overseas or staying up overnight to do something, but it could also be um, something pleasant. And our brain finds it hard to differentiate a tiger in the village from a party in the village in terms of the chemicals we release. And then after that precipitant that then triggers a habit of us behaving in a certain way at night that then winds us up rather than gets us back to sleep again, perpetuates the cycle. So it, it can almost behave like an addiction, which by my definition is a comforting habit that doesn't really help. Um, and then that knocks on to um, perpetuating and um, other factors, you know, that we put in our environment, like drink more caffeine to wake us up in the morning that can knock onto other things. So uh, simplifying it to sort of a, a setup, trigger, action and reaction is what I do when I'm talking to people in, you know, the most simple terms. And, and by understanding those simple factors, you can almost understand the cascade that leads to this feedback loop. 
that's a really interesting way of looking at it and something that's applicable to lots of other conditions, I imagined. And a theme that runs through quite a lot of our podcasts is that things that we now think of as being bad and pathological actually have a, an evolutionary advantage. So presumably the ability to wake up when there is an actual tiger in the village was very important in days gone by. Oh, absolutely. You know, it would have kept us alive. Uh, you know, it's only relatively recently we haven't had to fend off, you know, tigers or marauders. Um, and, and, and the other thing is to, to bear in mind that uh, we're designed to sort of sleep in little cycles. We have these mini rhythms within a 24-hour circadian cycle. We have these more subtle um, ultradian cycles that last about 90 minutes. So we're, we're actually designed to sleep and wake up and be awake and check there are no tigers. So it's totally natural to wake up at night and then the issue and get back to sleep. The issue is if you struggle to get back to sleep again or worrying that you're awake, then makes you more awake. <laughs> that's that's the paradox of it. Ashish, you mentioned cycles and rhythms in the night. Could you explain to me or to us what REM sleep is? Because there's a, something about REM sleep and non-REM sleep. Is, is that an important aspect of sleep? Yeah. So we spoke quite a lot about it in the previous podcast. So if people want a more detailed explanation. But put simply, during the early phase of our, our sleep, during, uh, we have um, a tendency to do our deep clean. So we go into our deep sleep and do our deep restorative processes. And then in the latter part of the night, the shift tends towards um, a more emotional processing. And uh, during that phase, parts of our brain architecture and our brain chemistry changes so, um, you know, set the, certain chemicals like serotonin and noradrenaline, they actually shift and our brains do become a little bit more neurotic. And so as our brains do their emotional processing at that time, if we do wake, we may feel naturally more agitated at that time. And so typical, there's a typical sort of period between sort of 2 and 4 a.m., that, for example, if someone goes to sleep by about 10, they'll do their deep clean in the first part, but then they'll kind of maybe wake up and go to the loo, but then find they're a bit agitated or they're suddenly thinking about that work issue. And again, it's totally natural to do it. Check there are no tigers and go back to sleep. And, and interestingly, there are two key periods which are identified with the different types of insomnia. Um, that relate to the release of one chemical I like to mention, which is noradrenaline. So we're designed to release noradrenaline just before we go to sleep and at certain transition points, say at about 3 a.m. And that's kind of evolution designed to say, just be more alert. And once you, and you can think of it like you watch a dog before it goes to sleep or a horse, it sort of prowls or stomps around a bit just to check there are no tigers under the bed, <laughs> you know, just check, is it safe? And then they go back to sleep doing a certain type of breath practice, a pause and breathe through their nose type practice. And then similarly in different phases in the night, we're designed to check. Um, and, and the trick is to switch on the alertness without becoming too aroused and then get back to sleep again. And that's where some other chemicals come in that are associated with insomnia. So we have another chemical in our brain called orexin, 
And I like to think of it as the king of parties, another known for its hypercretin. And, and in the name, it tells you what it does. It hyper lots of cretin secretions. When it switches on, it turns all the lights on in your brain and releases loads of other neurotransmitters. So um, acetylcholine and dopamine and, 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 in, and, sort of, and, as it, and histamines. And as it does that, it, it wakes up your brain. So if you wake up in the night and your mind is going, you know, 100 miles an hour, it's probably because you've released some of that orexin. And the natural way of turning off the orexin switch is called a sleep switch, and it's a chemical called GABA. And that's what a lot of relaxation processes and breath practices and some of the more modern drugs that have come out um, that are sort of short-term used to treat insomnia is they're just putting a little pause button and blocking that pathway. I hope that wasn't too too geeky, just to kind of some of the... Terms there. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I, I, we love the science, and I know our, our listeners do as well. If I can um, sort of come back to very practical things, say I come into you in the surgery and say, um, I've read all your things about these interesting chemicals, but I still can't get to sleep. What What would you suggest as a first step to somebody who's struggling with sleep? Uh, I go, thank you for coming in. We can do lots about it. Um, it gives me, it makes me really happy to uh, to talk about it because I know that for many people, insomnia is treatable if you do the right approach. And so um, I, 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 I tell them really simply, there are two issues that you need to get right. Firstly, you need to get the sleep basics so your body knows when it's time to wake up and go to sleep. But the problem is doing that on its own won't solve insomnia. It's the foundation, but it won't solve insomnia on its own. So those elements are another term for it is sleep hygiene. And in the last podcast, we spoke about, about getting your light, exercise, food, temperature, soothing and sleep spacing right. So the left's right. But the challenge with insomnia is actually trying harder releases more of the noradrenaline and orexin. And so sleep hygiene advice for some people could actually make their insomnia worse. And again, that's another one of the paradoxes. So whenever I mention sleep hygiene advice, I also say it really helps to work with the unconscious processes that wire your mind. And, and, um, and it's about rewiring a mind that is tired and wired at night. So though the body is tired, the mind is still wired. And, and the nice thing is it, it's possible to, re, for most people, um, recalibrate and rewire the mind using these nuanced processes in about six weeks. And, and I've seen people, you know, have had insomnia for like 50, 60 years. They've managed to turn it around that time. So I get quite excited when someone comes to me with that very point. Sounds very exciting to me because my question is what are these processes that processes <laughs> that you're suggesting that can help is this cbt which which we read about is evidence based for sleep or is it is it particular other aspects yeah so um cbti or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has a very powerful evidence base for for helping people address and, and recalibrate insomnia so it, it, the evidence would show that about 80 percent of people will find it 
very effective. And there are different ways of accessing it. And, 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 and what it does is, is kind of the names in the tin. It uses cognitive, so it uses thinking processes. It uses behavioral processes, so what you do in the day. And, and it, it uses kind of this subtly more therapeutic approaches as well. And it's, it's not deep diving into some of the underlying, say, mental health disorders that might be associated with the anxiety, but it helps you reframe and reconnect the parts of the brain. Is it all right if I describe how, an approach that I find quite helpful? It's a bit geeky again, but um, I'm going to use the metaphor of going off on a trip. And I mentioned some of these brain chemicals that are related to brain areas, but there are four brain areas that are chatting to each other at night that shouldn't be. And they related to kind of chemicals that I might have mentioned. So there's the bit that wakes you up, the kind of alertness part of your brain. And that's to do with the locus surrealis, which releases noradrenaline. And that's natural. It switches on. But what happens is think of a, a like a school bus with four boys in the back of the bus. And one of them wakes up when they should be napping. Goes, hey, hey, guys, wake up. <laughs> and then that wakes up the other centre which is one of the anxiety centers, which is called the amygdala, which goes, oh, what was it? Is there danger there? And the amygdala then wakes up, which then nudges the other part of the brain called the default mode network, which ruminates, which goes, oh, no, we're awake. Now we're awake. What are we going to do? We're awake. Well, what are we going to do? And then that one then wakes up the semantic centers, which are catastrophizing. And so what you have is alertness, triggering a bit of anxiety that then triggers rumination and catastrophizing. And then what you need to do is to just separate those school kids and just get them to sit slightly separately. Like during the daytime, it's great. You know, they'll have a great fun. They'll do lots of fun things together. But at nighttime, you just need to stop them from chatting with each other. And that's where the neuroplastic processes of rewiring the mind and changing habits come in really handily. And, and, um, and, and there are six skills that I teach people in how to do that. And our producer, David, has put in the chat that sometimes worrying about sleep can be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you alluded to that with the sleep hygiene. It is, and certainly something I've experienced where you're, you're not sleeping, you think, oh, dear, I've got to get to sleep or I'm not going to function. Is that something you see a lot? And how do we get out of that? Yeah, and you, you've pretty much, and so what the one of the core skills in um, in recalibrating sleep is is what to do in those circumstances. So the worst thing you could do is lie in bed, continuing to worry about sleep. And this is painful to hear, but the number one suggestion is if you're in bed and you haven't got to sleep within. Um, 30 minutes, I, I, I set a threshold of 20 minutes, but long enough for you to start getting more agitated and anxious, you started to wake up more of those naughty school kids, then the trick is to say these words, foot on the floor, get to the door. So without turning all of the lights on, ideally with a red torch or if you need something, get out of bed into the cool air and go to a separate place. So bed is just for sleep and snuggles, whereas it's really useful to have a separate sanctuary that you go to at night where you don't try to sleep. You just go and think, ah, 
what a beautiful time in the night. I'll just do something like keep my journal or listen to soothing music. Now, the fancy term for that is stimulus control. So bed is only for sleep and snuggles. Um, and then when you start feeling sleepy again, then you return back to bed. And that's where you can do some soothing strategy. So that's one of the second S's of the six, where you can do things like pause and breathe deeply through your nose or do something called progressive muscular relaxation, where you can squeeze your muscles as you breathe in and then relax to release. Or, or you can do some deep, shallow breathing or eye rolling or visualizations. And, and those soothing strategies um, uh, are, are spoken about in lots of different resources. So the NHS have resources. There's also a wonderful app called sleepful.me, which is great. Um, if you go to the Humble Sleep website, you can download a PDF with lots of other resources on it too. Um, and there's a great podcast by a, a friend and colleague called Louise Berger. And if you just uh, Google say goodnight to insomnia, she's got a half hour description of some of these resources. Um, and, and if you're still struggling with those soothing strategies, then there are other tools that you can use that I, I kind of call sleep scheduling, where rather than trying to get to bed earlier, which most people do, thinking, oh, I'm going to struggle tonight, I'll get to bed earlier. You actually paradoxically stay up later to build up more sleep drive and fuel to push you through the night. And what you're trying to do is build up a chemical called adenosine. And that adenosine is, think of it like fuel that pushes you all the way through the night. And you don't want to nap too close to bedtime to use up that fuel or consume drugs like caffeine or, or, um, or dark chocolate too close to bedtime to block that sleep drive. And caffeine, a very common cause of insomnia, isn't it? Whether it's with uh, pills or, or uh, these so-called so energy drinks or, or coffee. What, what's the latest time you think we should drink coffee or take caffeine? I've, I've heard 2 p.m. Is that? Yeah, my, my 10 general phases be done by one. If you can. Right. Be done by one. And then if it goes to two, it's less consequential. But each of us metabolize it in different ways. And similarly, people to consume alcohol or some of these sedative type drugs. The problem is, though they make you unconscious, they can actually disrupt some of those healing processes, particularly during the REM sleep and, and the deep sleep. So your sleep is less restorative. So the functional impacts are there, but also you go through a withdrawal symptom in the middle of the night. So you kind of go cold turkey and get a bit agitated and sweaty and release the noradrenaline. So though it can help you drop off to sleep, or it actually disrupts the quality and the duration. Interesting. And going back to your list, I've got number two soothing strategies, number three sleep scheduling. What was number one? I know you talked about Number it. one I call setting up success. So I'll go through the sequence if that's okay. So That'd number one is about setting up success. So firstly, CBTI is not necessarily suitable for absolutely anyone. So if you struggle with uh, epilepsy that's unregulated or have an acute sort of psychotic or mental health illness, really need to address that 
um, in a more supported way. So talking to your GP or, or a sleep service would be great. Um, the other thing is to set up those fundamentals. You remember about setting your body clock, so getting your left right. So they're all in place before you then look at stimulus control, which is number two, and then sleep scheduling, which is number three, trying to get to bed at a regular time and wake up at a regular time. And if you're awake at night, rather than going to bed earlier, actually going to sleep 15 minutes later to try and build up the sleep fuel. And then number four is the soothing strategies. Just knowing you've got a plan that you can attend to if you wake up at night, then means you feel less anxious about waking up at night. So it kind of undoes that cycle. And then the structured thinking is a way of actually addressing the unconscious processes that then mean that when thoughts come up at nighttime, they become threats. And it's how you can reframe your ideas. And, and slightly different to CBTI, I've developed a, a different process called surfing stress, which works with the neuromodulators. And I, I feel really honoured I teach my GP colleagues all about it. Um, so that's what I do in my humble project. I teach these other skills. And I, I found, you know, the, the benefits go well beyond sleep. So it's how you filter your thoughts and you harness them like a surfer would harness sleep waves. You know, they become useful. And then the final thing is to set free because we know the environmental triggers are still there. But how when you, you, you kind of step out and no longer define yourself as an insomniac, can you then have the robustness? And you need to build in these little support structures so that you keep up those supportive habits and don't fall back in again. But the good news is if you do go back into insomnia, um, you, you know you can get out of it. And so that's the key thing is just knowing there's a pathway out. Uh, and and I, I've developed these things called sleep bands that help people. I found that are better than pills to, because they act as psychological triggers. So what you need is a little reminder to keep you on track. Interesting. Uh, absolutely fascinating. So lots of people can be, be helped. Um, Peter? From the evidence-based point of view, because this is this takes us a long way away from what you and I learned at medical school when we used to, well, I don't think they were still teaching about barbiturates then, but then we moved into the azepams and the Z drugs, and I'm sure I'm sure there's another one coming on the market soon if there isn't already. Yeah, um, I, I can talk briefly about pharmaceuticals if you like really briefly that would be really helpful yeah because yes, i've just been approached by several icps to talk to them about them because a new drug has come on the market um and and so in terms of sort of pharmaceutical approaches think of them like a tool in a toolbox the idea is you pull out a hammer when you need it and then you use it and then you put it back in the toolbox again um, because um, and these come in different categories and they work on some of the brain chemicals that you've got. So one is a melatonin. Now, melatonin, you can think of as a starting gun for sleep and we produce it when it gets cold and dark at night. And it's really helpful to keep your sleep time cold and dark. But as we get older, particularly above 55, we produce naturally a lot less melatonin. So for people over 55 or for um, sometimes neuro ch children with neurotypical 
dis disorders, short use melatonin can be useful, but you, you don't really want to ideally use it long term because it's it's such a nuanced hormone that affects multiple different systems. Um, I found, though, that using behavioural strategies, you can give yourself a big turbo boost anyway, so you might not need it. That's why I prefer to harmonise rather than hack our system with an external drug if I can. The other are sleeping tablets like Zopiclone is an example, the Z drugs. Again, during an acute situation, you know, a dose can be helpful at helping people get to sleep. But the problem is it's associated with poor quality sleep and injuries. And the difficulty is people have more car accidents. And so if you're sleepy and driving, your insurance is invalidated. And so it's really important to use these things with care. And then a new drug that's come out and licensed by NICE is called Daradaroxant. And that blocks orexin. Do you remember me talking about the party in the brain? And so it blocks that. Um, and again, short-term use, it's been licensed for that. The, the, there are challenges, though, in its use. And so that's why the, the, I've been approached, because there are so many other ways that you can use to harmonise and learn from why you've got insomnia. So maybe using it short bursts has a place, but I just think let's let's see if we can bring out our best. And you mentioned the benzodiazepines and you mentioned GABA and, of course, the benzodiazepines work on the GABA receptors uh, to a great extent, don't they? And it seems one of the problems is that if we take drugs that mimic our natural hormones, our brain thinks, oh, well, that's a good. I don't need to produce it anymore. So that's why you get this withdrawal effect. Is, is that right? Or am I oversimplifying you're, and getting you're, the... You're bang on it. So there's a, something called dependence and tolerance that can develop. But also, here's the, the shocking thing. Though you think you're unconscious, you think you're sleeping, all you are is unconscious. So you're not actually doing... It actually blocks the natural restorative processes that happen in the brain because you need pulsatile release. You need it released at the right time. But if you have it continuously, it actually blocks your ability to be restored by sleep. And that's the real tragedy is, you know, drinking alcohol or, or using those Z drugs long term actually blocks the healing processes of sleep. Really interesting. And just one last question that uh, David kind of suggested to us. Um, dehydration can cause anxiety, which might fuel insomnia as well. The yeah. Yes. So um, a kind of lot, anything that will trigger noradrenaline release. So being uh, having a resting level of dehydration uh, is one of the things you can imagine in our ancestors would trigger it. Also, if we watch the 10 o'clock news before going to bed, that would trigger it. Also, looking at bright lights itself triggers a part of our brain called the habenula, which you can think of it like a, a little mammal look at lightning. It would say, don't go out there, it's too dangerous. And so in many ways, grandma was right about, you know, these simple things about light, exercise, food, temperature, soothing, and then your sleep space. If you can get it and those timed with your body clock, so doing those lefts right over the course of the day, you'll, you'll naturally just put yourself in the right place to be able to sleep. And if you hang out there and give your brain something useful to do at night, your brain will rewire and just separate those naughty boys at nighttime so they're not chatting at the wrong time. And you mentioned lights and there's 
been a lot, hasn't there, about you know, we should cut out blue light. But I've I've seen some data questioning this. So do you feel it, it's still valid advice? Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting uh, that, that, you know, it's evolving. Each of us is unique and nuanced. There is evidence that it does impact, but that each of us is, there are so many other factors to consider. And so um, uh, uh, let's just say the amount of bright light you get in the daytime actually modulates the effect of blue light at night. So if there was a really exciting movie or a party you wanted to go to and not disrupt your sleep at night, then go for it, but just get plenty of daylight in the early part of the day because your brain will naturally reset its its homeostatic, its its midpoint if you do do that. Fascinating. And I, I think as somebody who's uh, sort of tried to, to deal with insomnia over the years, I realise how little I know about the underlying mechanisms and the right way to deal with it. it it's always great to still be learning uh, at our stage of life. So I I, I hope the people, the other people listening to you have, have learned as much as I have. I don't know about you, Andrew. I, I was never taught any of this stuff at medical school. This has been a fascinating lesson for me. So thank you so much, Ashish. Really, really helpful. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, I, I, I myself am learning all the time. I'm, I'm a humble GP and I te- I'm teaching doctors in the medical school. So it will be the norm to consider these things now. So uh, and I'm learning with them and you too. I like uh, you guys are wise sages. I love your podcast. So uh, I feel honoured to share what little I can offer. So thank you. Thanks very much indeed. And thank you to the to our listeners for Uh, for sharing the last half hour with a a, a fantastic guest talking about a fantastic topic. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board.